I-94 on Lumpen Radio. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pills and Community Books, where we're already getting off to a great start. This is I-94, as always. My name is Jamie Trecker. That is Jeremy Kitchen. That is Michael Sack. Say hello. 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 And tonight, we are with the author... I'm afraid to talk <laughs> Kathleen Ballou. And th- this, this book is not a humorous book, and yet we're laughing. Uh, you can see it in my hand. It is called Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. Please give a warm, warm Pills and Community Books. Welcome to Dr. Ballou. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So uh, tonight, we're, we're discussing this book, which is out now from Harvard. Uh, Dr. Ballou has written a history of what she calls in terms of the white power movement in America. Uh, I'd like to actually just start at the beginning because she uses a very specific description to talk about a group of people that I think some of us have had other names for, such as neo-Nazis, the alt-right, and uh, if you would, if you don't mind dipping into why you chose that particular, po- that particular phrase in this entire book and why you think it's the most historically accurate. Sure. So one problem with nomenclature has to do with dividing people up artificially. Um, historians, like many people, I think, like to come in and make order out of chaos. So we like to sort people by their belief systems. Um, In this case, um, trying to tally how many people are in the Klan, how many people are neo-Nazi, how many people are skinheads among some of the constituencies I write about. Um, The thing is that the lived reality of this is usually a lot messier. People move between belief systems, between groups, and even between ideologies with regularity over decades um, in the archive of this study. So one thing to understand is that white, white power is an umbrella term meant to convey the way that those different belief systems are coming together and informing each other in that time period. The other thing has to do with the phrase white nationalism, which is maybe the most frequent Um, I would say misnomer for the movement that I'm describing. Um, When we say nationalism, the image that comes to mind for a lot of people has to do with like hyper patriotism. And people think about sort of a over exercise of something that many people think of as a fundamentally positive value. Um, And that's partly because when we say nationalism, the implied nation that people think of is the United States, which is the nation that I would think of as my country, and many of you might think of as an, as your nation. Um, that's not what these activists think of when they think of a nation. The white power movement is nationalist, technically, in the poli-sci sense of that term, but they're talking about a transnational racial nation of white people that is going to stretch across national boundaries and is constructed eventually to um, expel other people and deny rights to everyone who is not part of that white racial nation. Now, that is a white power ideology. That's not the same thing as an over-exercise of nationalism. One of the, the subgroups of the white power movement that you mentioned frequently um, is a Christian identity group. I, I had never come across that before. Can you um, explain to us what that what that group is? And I, I did want to mention, too, before we uh, get further into the discussion, we're talking about post-Vietnam until the fall of the World Trade Center um, in our discussion today. Obviously, it's continued, but I just want to make that point because that's the time frame that the book falls over. And I also want to mention, I never start the show, and I don't know what I was doing earlier. But uh, um, So I want to just get those two points across. But if you want to talk about, because I, I know after reading the book, I know that we went um, prior to Vietnam, a lot of the white power groups in America were more um, nationalist. And then after, we had a lot of disenfranchised veterans coming back, and then it became anti-government. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the 
the way that happened? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let me backtrack. There are several questions. Um, yeah, that's sorry. how we roll in the One show. One was about the periodization of the book. So thank you for clarifying that. I should just say I'm a historian. This argument stops cold at 1995 because that's when my archives end. Um, the kind of study that I'm trying to do in this book is based on a huge and voluminous paper archive. Um, the advantage of that kind of study is that you get both people's actions and what they say they're doing, right? So both rhetoric and the actual record of people's life and work um, over many decades. Um, it's a wide view and that lets us connect all of these groups into one movement and understand how they see themselves in a different way than say sociology where you get a snapshot of one group in a very finite amount of time, right? Um, so these, are the, these are just to correct or amplify, I guess, these are white power newsletters and newspapers and what, what, where Seems. were these archives? Let me come around to that. Okay. So, so um, the reason it stops in 1995 is that I can't keep going. The archive um, that I use would not be available for the present moment for another few decades. So it's not a kind of approach that we can extend into the present without some bumps in the road. Um, so the archival base for the book, as you say, includes white power ephemera collections. Um, so newsletters, magazines, correspondence, pamphlets, posters. Um, also, the records of watchdog groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center who were keeping tabs on these groups and often sending in undercover informants. Um, the work and notes of local journalists who are covering this over time. Um, the newspaper accounts of the events in question um, which range across the United States and also into Mexico and Nicaragua in the case of mercenary soldiers. Um, and then a ton of stuff that I got through the Freedom of Information Act from um, the FBI, the Marshall Service, and the, back, the uh, ATF. Um, so all of that together gives you a lot of different perspectives, right? It, it includes the public messaging of the movement, what people were saying to each other in private um, within the movement, how um, the FBI was interacting with the movement, which had a huge range of different possibilities, um, and then the newspaper coverage. Um, and one important thing about that last part is that nothing in this book is revealed for the first time in this book. Every event I talk about was covered in a very substantial ways by the press at the time that it happened. So the Greensboro shooting, for instance, which is an event in 1979 we can talk more about, was the Saturday Night Live sketch, um, a deeply unfunny Saturday Night Live sketch. Um, the paramilitary training camps were reeled on programs like Good Morning America and The Today Show. These were major stories in the Christian Science Monitor, the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, the, um, in uh, the Oregonian and the Houston Chronicle. Um, so the question is about our apparatus of understanding, right? It's not that we didn't have a chronicle of these events, it's that we didn't have a historical frame to understand them as part of a story. Did you think about interviewing? Um, I did think about interviewing. Um, there were a few cases, though, where I had very good firsthand accounts of people at the time of action. So um, one thing that happened was a lot of undercover reporters infiltrated these groups and FBI informants infiltrated these groups um, and got the kind of questions asked that I would like to ask of some of the actors. Um, and what they said in that moment is not the same thing that they would say in their self-published autobiography, say, 10, 15 years afterward. So in the end, I, I sort of, I, this is where I'm a historian, historian, and I sort of let the archive be the authoritative source. Um, let me circle back to your first yeah, thing. Yeah. So Christian identity is, um, was a, well, is a political theology that is both a religion and sort of a white supremacist worldview. Um, and it posits that... Um, white people are the true lost tribe of Israel and everyone else is descended from a different 
source. So either from Satan or from animals, depending on who you ask. That includes all people of color, all Jewish people. Um, it goes on like that. Um, it, it's similar to British Israelism. Um, dualism is another one that's sometimes lumped in with the same set of people. Um, creativity is another one. Um, was that Matt Hale? Was Matt Hale? Mm-hmm. He's World Church of the Creator. Yeah. Yes. We, he actually, Matt Hale was from the northern suburbs of Chicago, and we actually had to create a library policy based on the World Church of the Creator. Not me personally. I worked for the Chicago Public Library. But because he was using libraries as a place to speak publicly, um, I believe it's changed since then. We used to not allow religious groups, but I think now anyone can use it. But there was actually, it was because of him. And he killed somebody, correct? Didn't he mm-hmm. shoot someone? Um, I believe so. I would need to double check my notes. Yeah, I th- and he did? One of his supporters said, "Thanks, Joe." I think. I mean, the the shooting in Skokie, the one that um the the one that's become the name of the race in Evanston, oh, yeah. the race for hate. That was that group. And uh, we were talking before the show a little bit. You know, I learned about most of these groups from alternative media. Basically, going to Quimby's in the '90s, sitting there, and, you know, reading the, because a lot of the alternative. And Jamie, I'm sure you remember this too. In the '80s and '90s, like the alternative or punk rock press, mostly leftist, but also some extent to the right, covered these things in great detail. And um, and it, it was interesting when I was reading the books, I'm like, oh, I know a lot of this stuff. And it was just, you know, just from hanging out and trading magazines. And, and I think that's one of the things we've lost with, you know, some of the, a lot of the print stuff going into blogs because we don't have this community that, that we used to have. Yeah, that's really interesting about um, thinking about how materials circulate between people of different viewpoints, particularly because in that time period that you're pointing to um, where zines and other alternative media were really sort of like a point of interaction, um, it was also a moment when this white power movement was making this big pivot to try to recruit urban skinheads, right? So this is a movement that had been largely... um, understood as um, kind of rural, conservative, socially conservative um, survivalist, right? And if we think about the Klan that confronted the civil rights movement, we don't think about younger skinheads in urban centers, right? But by the time we get into the white power groundswell, particularly in the 80s, um, this is a movement that stretches across regions. It's in cities, suburbs, and rural locations. Um, it crosses gender, it crosses class. Women and families are very important. And these alternative spaces like punk rock scenes are sites of contestation between um, racist skinheads and non-racist skinheads, between different kinds of alternative cultural formation. What I thought was interesting, um, just I don't want to get too far afield on this, but one of the things that struck me was in your account here, the commercial mainstream newspapers' accounts of all the actions that these actors take make it seem as these things are very disconnected from one another. There's almost an apology for them. Whereas contemporary mainstream newspaper accounts of people on the left, it's always billed as a giant kind of dangerous horde of communism that's coming into America. What Jeremy's talking about, too, and it it resonated very much with me when I was reading this as well, I remember reading in a lot of alternative zines, there was a real understanding that this actually was a coordinated movement on the right, and that these people were not individual actors, and that was totally missing from mainstream coverage. The lone wolf. Yes, the the lone wolf hoax. These people were not lone wolves. If you you were reading Punk Planet or you were reading MRR, you knew they were not. They, They were organized groups that had organized leaders, and they had an organized agenda. And I, I found that fascinating it, when reading this because I, I kept looking at the headlines that you, you quote from the Times, the Oregonian or the Memphis Gazette. 
all, all these people are, are individuals. Well, they weren't. And I, I, I wondered if you had the same reaction when you were writing the book. Sense. Um, yes and no. So I came to this project sort of sideways and actually through the idea of warfare rather than through the idea of a social movement. Um, I came to it because I set out to write something on truth and reconciliation commissions. And I was interested in this TRC in Greensboro, North Carolina um, in 2005 that was trying to sort of think about um, how to reckon with legacies of racial violence in the United States. That's my entry point to the project. Um, and it was responding to this shooting in 1979 where a united caravan of neo-Nazis and Klansmen opened fire on a leftist Death to the Klan march in Greensboro, um, killed five people, four of the victims were white men and then one African-American woman, um, which already if you're a historian, doesn't work, right? It's it's too late, really, to be part of the civil rights movement. It's too early, really, to be part of several other trajectories. The victims are all wrong for what we think of as the Klan in that period. Like, it didn't fit. So um, I started sort of pulling at the thread on that sweater. And then the second thing that happened is people would come before this TRC to talk about their viewpoint. And people who were perpetrators or were affiliated with the Klan or neo-Nazi groups said things like, well, I shot communists in Vietnam. Why wouldn't I shoot them in North Carolina? Now, that is a profound collapse of meaning, right? That collapses battlefield and home front. That collapses wartime and peacetime. That collapses different kinds of leftist enemies, right, um, across racial lines. That works in a lot of ways that I found really important. Um, and then when I got into the archive, what I found is that that idea actually resonated throughout this huge social movement. Um, and the movement actually became clear to me, not from the alternative weeklies, although I'd like to go back actually and reread these particular ones that you mentioned. Um, give but you some other ones. As yeah, well. I'd love that. Yeah. But but mm. through actually um, I, the movement became clear to me through women. Um, because once you start paying attention to the women in the movement, you start to see the ways that these social relationships are stretching across space, right? Um, and by tracking the marriages and interrelationships and other kinds of social ties between the groups, that's how you see it as connected from mm -hmm. the archival standpoint. Now, that's not to say, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that activists in the moment, um, journalists in the moment, and a few very... Um, brave and sort of anti-institutional FBI agents in the moment were really on this and really trying to persuade people that there was a movement afoot. But there's all kinds of systemic things blocking that understanding and blocking institutions from responding in a way that could really make a difference. Um, and those range from FBI policy at its most extreme to sort of like personal bias, right? And you see this at, in every episode, there are a combination of sort of, there's a combination of individual and systemic um, reactions that sort of, there's just never a moment where there's a decisive stop on this movement. It's interesting. I, I was going to wait till later to bring up the, the, the women, but since you brought it up, we should go there now because <clears throat> that was something that I, I guess I had known, but I hadn't really thought that deeply about it. And I think you do an excellent job of talking about, particularly in the, in the case of one, one trial specifically, how women and their children were, uh, used not only as propaganda and used as props, but also used as the kind of glue to hold the entire thing together when <clears throat> the majority of the main actors in the field were, were white males, obviously. And that, uh, you know, there's a weird conflation. You mentioned that, you know, the 
most of the myth uh, that these people in the white power movement put forward was that they had to have more white children. They were going to outbreed every other race. So female babies were, were held up and, in fact, used in indoctrination ceremonies because that symbolized uh, the fertility of the white race and all this other gobbledygook that, as a Jew, I'm having trouble actually some repeating. Some, like, um, some to be candid it, with you. But, some um, of it was actually like carried over from like Scandinavian Odin, I think, yeah. Odin mythology, mm -hmm. things like yeah. that, which is also... Um, that's popular in the black metal movement, like the National Socialist <clears throat> Black Metal Movement. And I was, many of these things that I was reading, um, even going back to the, I, I grew up in, in the Detroit area, and you go to punk shows in the 80s, there'd be a hundred neo-Nazi skinheads standing back to back in front of the stage. And if you got too close, the Nazi party would be at punk shows giving out cards to yeah. try and recruit people. And the women was a big part of it. They'd have like, these hot, you know, like punk rock skinhead girls, you know, and they'd mm -hmm. be out like recruiting. I mean, it was insane. Yeah. And I, people don't see that you know, or. Um, well, we saw it because we were in a different scene. Yeah. And it's exactly. a marginal scene. I think that we have to point this out. The, the white power movement is a marginal Very scene. Very marginal. What I think is interesting and terrifying about this book is that you've made a very compelling case that it is a much bigger scene and it should be given far more attention. Uh, but just to give an example, uh, the heading of chapter seven shows Lewis Beam and, and his wife, Sheila. And this is a classic piece of unintentional propaganda. This is a newspaper photograph that I believe is from the Kansas City Star. Am I correct? Mm -hmm. uh, and he, I don't want to go too deep in the weeds here, but he, he won a trial basically for conspiracy, against conspiracy and all sorts of stuff. And his wife was essentially used as a prop. She was a Christian identity Sunday school teacher. Uh, and uh, they used her at the trial to paint him as... Uh, a upstanding citizen of incredible valor and all this other hokey that if you actually paid attention to the trial couldn't possibly be true but she was very systematically used and she in, in some ways she becomes almost the archetypal uh, woman in this movement in your telling and I wonder if you could just go a little deeper on that because that that's a real central thread of the book sure and I think the only place that I would sort of um, push back a little bit on the question is mm -hmm. that Yes, women are used symbolically, and yes, um, in that particular case, Sheila Beam is sort of deployed, exactly as you say. But I think the women here are also doing this very actively of their own volition in yeah. many cases, right? Yeah. This is a kind of activism that we in the academy have not been very good at writing about, um, in large part, um, with the major exceptions being scholars of conservatism. But there isn't just one way to be involved in a social movement, especially for women. All of the women that I write about here are women who would say they're anti-feminist, who say they don't want to be leaders, who say they don't want to be influencing the things that should be part of like a male sphere. Um, but they pop up at really important moments doing all kinds of things that are activism. Um, so when Sheila Beam faints outside the courthouse, I don't have a way to know for sure whether she's performing that on purpose, whether um, she has simply gotten dizzy and fallen over, or whether someone set that up, right? But what I can tell you is that that photograph says all those, like, as you say, it's a scene that could come from Birth of a Nation. She's passed out with her hair draped over her husband's arm. She has no shoes on. She's wearing a long dress. I mean, it's a very, very performative moment. And it's not the only performative moment of hers during that trial that has bearing on the outcome, um, at least from a historical perspective. Now, so the trial that you're talking about is the Seditious Conspiracy Trial, which is a federal trial of um, uh, 13 activists and leaders in the movement um, for charges including seditious conspiracy, which is a very rare charge. Um, in the United States, it's usually been used against very, it, it's an extreme cases kind of a, a prosecution. So Puerto Rican nationalists are the other place we see that charge. 
Um, in this charge, um, a couple of things happen. Um, Sheila Beam's husband, Louis Beam, who is a leader and architect of the movement, goes on the run to Mexico. Um, he's on the FBI most wanted list at that time. And then they're apprehended in Mexico. Um, the pursuing agents surround him and arrest him after they come home from grocery shopping. And he and his young daughter are in the car. Um, Sheila is in the house. She says that she thinks they're being robbed because she doesn't speak Spanish. Um, it's worth mentioning that the words that they would have used to identify themselves as police are all English cognate words, just to think oh, about. Okay. Well, from so reading she, the book, I thought the officer didn't announce himself at all. Mm, I think he announced, well, okay. I think he announced himself. Yeah. So she shoots the pursuing officer in the stomach. He's hospitalized. She's jailed. And then she's extradited back to the United States after being released on self-defense. Um, in the articles covering her return to the United States, there are repeated moments where her return is talked about and pictured, even with like her leaning on a family friend, carrying bouquets of flowers, and the caption is like, Sheila Beam has returned home, blah, 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 without talking about Louis Beam or why he's on the run or the shooting of the Mexican officer. So the way that her innocence is working performatively, totally apart from the, the actual crimes that she has been either adjacent to or directly involved with, is really instructive in this moment, right? Another good example is um, one of a woman who actually seems to not have been a um, particularly, I, well, I'm not sure how to characterize it. I only have record of her from a court trial, so it's actually difficult to, to gauge how involved in the movement she was. Um, and she's in the court record because she's testifying against her husband, and he's actually representing himself in a different trial and therefore cross-examining her, which leads to like a really bizarre court record. Um, but when, um, when the government is examining her, they ask her about this moment. So there is a, there's a white terrorist group called the order. It's actually a pretty famous one. It's the one that, um, robbed armored cars in California, um, got millions of dollars, distributed the money all over the country. Um, and its leader, Bob Matthews was killed by pursuing federal agents at Whidbey Island, Washington, and this big ball of fire. Um, it's like a moment that has been, TV miniseries allized or something in, in every <laughs> account, right? Like it's always like he's making his last stand. It's this big masculine moment. It's just him in this cabin. Um, so they talk about this cabin a lot. It's reminiscent From, of the Bundy, yeah. Bundy thing in very, Oregon. Very, yeah, yeah. very. Um, it turns out that this cabin is actually like a, a nice two-story vacation home. <laughs> um, and this, this house, we learned from her testimony, just a few days before... He is killed. He is alone when he's killed. But like two days before he's killed, this house is full of women and toddlers. Like they're dyeing his hair so he can escape. They're cooking everybody's spaghetti. They're taking care of the kids. Like they like him because he plays with the kids. And in this time, he writes an, a document called the Declaration of War for the Order, which is an important founding document that's still referenced today. So somebody asks this woman on the stand, like, did you ever see this document when you were at this house hold up with Bob Matthews right before he dies? She's like, oh, yeah. And they said, in what capacity? She's like, oh, I proofread it for them. So, okay, any historian immediately wants to know, what does proofread mean to you? Because that's actually an opportunity to really shape a document. Like, she may have you know, written some of it. So when women say they're not in leadership roles in this movement, the way the ideology works asks us to look a little bit deeper and it really does show us something about how this works. Yeah, that's I want an to, excellent point too. That's I want to mention uh, Louis Beam because mm -hmm. um, it, my memory's a little shaky right now, but he was a, Viet, a door gunner in Vietnam 
And then he came back and he was wrote a essays of the Klansman. Is that mm -hmm. correct? And he was one of the first to take the nationalism to the anti-government, right? Correct. And he was the one that talked about, you know, if you know, why if we're killing communists over in Vietnam, we should be killing communists here. But I just want to have you maybe tell us a little bit about his origin because this kind of he, he starts the book off and we've been kind of jumping all around. And um, do you want to give us a little maybe backstory about Beam and, and why he was important to the movement? Absolutely. So um, Louis Beam was, um, he served two tours in Vietnam. Um, he had actually served in Germany before that. And then two tours at Vietnam um, as a door gunner on a Huey helicopter. Um, and he wrote, as you say, this compendium, Essays of a Klansman, that was published in 1983, republished in 1989, and is, and is now um, kind of still circulating. And a lot of it is now published on the internet in various ways. Um, what he's asking for, though, and this is where the title of the book comes from, so thank you for the question. It's, it's not just that Greensboro collapse about why wouldn't I kill communists here. It's even bigger. Um, what Beam is talking about is the distance between warfare and the home front. And his argument is sort of that the wrongness of combat in Vietnam and the horror of combat in Vietnam reveal, first of all, that the federal government is corrupt and can't be saved. And secondly, that violence should be extended to everyone who didn't support people in Vietnam. And right? a betrayal, Everybody. right? Yeah, a huge betrayal. So he's arguing, I think he says, um, let them face the same something that those of us killed received or the same justice. So it's about, it's about everybody. It's about civilians who didn't support the war, media that didn't support the war. Um, his list of people that have betrayed him is very, very long and complex. Um, it's interesting because what he's doing there is sort of tapping into this broader current of how people understand the Vietnam War in that time period. So, um, in the 1980s, there's a resurgent understanding, well, not resurgent, a new understanding of the war as being um, sort of a moment of wrongness, that veterans haven't been honored, that veterans have faced um, severe trauma, that um, we have the emerging idea of PTSD and other sorts of diagnoses that are around this too. Um, and that's not at all to undercut the very real wrongness of the war um, as experienced by veterans. Um, but what Beam is doing there is mobilizing this common sentiment of betrayal in order to recruit people to his project, which is war on the state itself. And using military techniques to bring to these groups, you know, as a paramilitary training and exactly. camps and things like that. Exactly, yeah. Beam opens multiple paramilitary training camps that are modeled on Vietnam um, War boot camps. Um, and actually, he uses the Texas Veterans Land Grant to buy the land for one of those camps. So he's directly funneling the resources and technology um, and knowledge of the Vietnam War into this other project. That's a great place to pause. We actually do have to pause for uh, station ID and underwriting. So everybody, please give it up one more time for Dr. Ballou. And we'll be right back. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are I-94. We're back here live at Pills and Community Books. Please give it up for Kathleen Ballou. Uh, as we were talking before the break, Dr. Ballou has written this book. It's called Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement and Peller Military America. Uh, it is out now from Harvard. She is actually an assistant professor uh, at the University of Chicago. 
Uh, before we get back in, because before the break we were talking about Vietnam, I did want to ask a little bit about, you talked about your interest in how you got into the project, but I want to talk to you a little bit about your process of writing the actual book. Did this start off as any sort of thesis, or was this just a, a, a paper that was meant for publication? Um, yeah, no, this came from the, my dissertation, um, which started to look into a lot of this, but between the dissertation and the book, I got access to a ton more material. Um, several major court cases. And when I say court case, it sounds like a piece of paper, but this is usually like 20 boxes of stuff. Um, and because I'm not a legal historian, there's a lot in there that interests me. So the story of that woman I was telling you about wouldn't even appear um, to you unless you're sort of a cultural historian who's looking for that kind of thing. It's not the decision. It's not any kind of a legal document. It's just part of the testimony that was given in the trial. Um, so those really made a difference in, in how I thought of some parts of it between the dissertation and the book. Um, and then a lot of the stuff about the, the chapter about women actually was at one point going to be an article, and then it turned out to belong in the book. And how, where did you study these archives at? Where are the archives being held? That was that, my question. Yeah. Sure. The, um, so there are several archives, um, and I should just say to aspiring authors and historians out there that there is a lot more to do with all of these archives. Um, so one archive that I used is called the Wilcox Collection. It's at the University of Kansas. There was an archivist there who was just interested in extremism, and he developed a questionnaire that he sent out to groups on the left and the right and said, can you just like fill this out about what you believe and just send me whatever you have lying around? And in the process, he has, it's just masses of stuff. So it's everything from like newsletters to personal correspondence. Once people knew he wanted it, they sent him their letter collections. They sent him posters and bumper stickers and just left and right, all kinds of stuff. And it's all searchable through the Kansas Library Catalog, which is online. Okay. Um, yes. Lawrence? Yes. Um, another collection that I used is more recently available, um, the Hall, Hag, excuse me, Hall Hoag Collection on Dissenting and Extremist Propaganda, I think is the full name. It's at Brown. Um, and that one was compiled by archivists who went to meetings, um, did not announce themselves as non-members, and then took back whatever literature was distributed. So that one is sort of more of a undercover grab what's being discussed. Um, and then the third one is at University of Oregon. It's been a closed collection for a while, but I believe they're going to open it um, by Eleanor Langer. It's the Langer Papers, um, compiled by a journalist at The Nation when she was writing a book about one, um, one event in Portland in the, I believe, early 90s. Um, all of those collections had different sort of, um, people had different objectives, but they got kind of the same set of stuff. So that makes me feel as a historian that I have had a pretty good overview of what was produced um, and kind of what was really out there and circulating. That's great. While we're, yeah. while we're on literature, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Turner Diaries. And that, was, that was mentioned all throughout your, your book uh, as being an influence on the movement, it, it, almost like a manual, really, mm -hmm. for that. That was also talked about in Alternative Press. I actually used to own the Turner Diaries and the sequel, Hunter, and I read them both, mm -hmm. and I will tell you, it is the worst writing you've ever. It's worse than Ayn Rand. So, it's down there. If it, you can imagine, down that. there with L. Ron Hubbard. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. It's about that. Yeah. Okay. You like Scientology? Yet, you love the Turner Diaries. <laughs> it's oh, still man. it's still caught on like wildfire with these guys. I'm, I'm worried about the associations of Scientology. <laughs> the um. Okay. So the Turner. All of those. Oh. <laughs> but okay, so. None of them, Ayn Rand and L. Ron Hubbard, are not related to this movement in any way, shape, or form. That's right. <laughs> the, that I know of. The, um, so the Turner Diaries is sort of a 
what the movement would see as a utopian novel about um, a war that produces an all-white world um, and also becomes a manual for organizing in a way that I'll talk about some more in a minute. Um, as a work of fiction, what it is, it purports to be the found diaries of this one guerrilla warrior in the movement, Earl Turner, who is in a cell and mounting attacks on the government. And it sort of details how this happens and how it works out. And then we lose track. I'm going to spoil it now. Yes, so just it's fine. If you, don't want it, if you don't want it spoiled for yourselves, just cover your ears yeah. wherever you're listening. Um, so the book ends with Turner flying a... Uh, a nuclear warhead into the Pentagon um, on a suicide mission that he has to go on for a variety of reasons. Um, and then we get this handy epilogue that describes all the events that happen after that in which the revolution of, of white people succeeds. Um, they overthrow the United States. They um, basically um, force march all people of color out of the country or hang them. And then they use nuclear warheads and chemical weapons on anyone who's not white in the rest of the world and start over. Year zero. So um, it's very much like any 80s apocalypse novel that you will read, first of all. So it's a product of its time. Um, but it's important to understanding this movement because it answers what is a really, really important question for taking this seriously, which is, how in the world did this very small fringe group of people think that they were going to overthrow the U.S. government, right? This is the 80s and the 90s, right? This is like the, the super state moment of the United States. And a lot of it actually happens after the fall of the Soviet Union, too, when we're talking about, like, New World Order, U.S. forever. Um, you know, my colleagues at U.S. Chicago were writing about the end of history because the U.S. is going to be a victorious forever kind of moment, right? Um, Didn't work out real well. <laughs> well, even even and it was mentioned in the book and in some of the interviews that I heard, um, these guys did not like Reagan, no. especially at the end. They thought Reagan was too liberal. Right. So if that gives you an idea, like where they these guys they are thought the from. state was beyond saving, and yeah. the second term of Reagan proved that to them. We can come back to that. But so Turner Diaries um, talks about this problem as like a gnat trying to assassinate an elephant, right? It's a tiny group of people thinking about how to wage asymmetrical combat on a much stronger force. If you are in this room and have been reading um, things, this will sound very Maoist to you probably. Um, they specify that that is not where they're getting this at all and that it's all from US Army asymmetrical warfare manuals. Um, the Turner Diaries becomes a way to coordinate a new strategy that is a very important and innovative thing um, called leaderless resistance, which is what we would now think of as cell-style warfare. It's the idea that you can organize a highly dedicated group of people in small groups, send them off in kind of cultural harmony with one another such that they can pick out their own target and execute it and it will all just work out for the benefit of the movement. Um, the Turner Diaries becomes sort of the instrument of indoctrination, um, a playbook of strategies, and also sort of the way that people are kind of read into the belief systems of this movement. So the order, that group we talked about before, kept a stack of like 20 or 30 of them in the bunkhouse where they trained people. Um, Timothy McVeigh sold it and carried it around in his car. Um, those are just a couple examples. Glenn Miller um, in the White Patriot Party passed them out to recruits for free um, in North Carolina. So this is a, it, it appears all over the place. Oh, the mercenaries had them too. They show up in South Africa and Johannesburg. Um, the book circulates in serial form. Um, it gets passed around um, in paperback. Um, I once inadvertently 
when listing it on a syllabus, did not remind the bookstore not to order it just because it was on the syllabus. And I got a letter like, Dear Ms. Blue, thank you for ensuring the future of white children. And I was like, I will not be doing that again. Is it still in um, print? Yeah. Oh, it's in print? It's still in print. I, I think and they've so. sold I mean, like 500,000 copies of it, by it's, the way. It's circulated a lot. Yeah. It's a bestseller. Um, let's let's make a, a point yeah. of this. It is a bestseller. On, on, the, ba- on the back cover, it likes to tell you which books it sold more than, too. Yes. So, because they're yes. happy about its circulation. Um, well, I mean, it is art for the movement, though. I mean, if yeah. you think of it in, in that way, Red Red Dawn's another touchdown yeah. for these guys, yeah. which is an awful 80s movie about Soviets. By awful, but, you mean awesome. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, 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 my stomach hurts a little now. But it's also but, like, it's it's the, it's a really good example. And I think the skinhead magazines um, and all, like punk zines also do this, too. It's, it's an example of where this movement was able to pick up on, interpret, and capitalize on bigger currents in American society at that moment, right? So this is classic right out of the Klan playbook from the jump. If you look at the Klan in the 20s, um, we think of the Klan now, most people think of the Klan as being anti-black and anti-Jewish, right? But the Klan in the 20s was anti-Mexican if it was on the U.S.-Mexico border. It was anti-immigrant if it was in the Northeast. It was anti-labor if it was in the Northwest where they were having unionization issues. Anti-Catholic in Indiana because Notre Dame is in Indiana, right? So the Klan has always used the strategy of sort of figuring out how to read the prevailing public sentiment, and then mobilizing it to recruit and foment um, activity. So um, Lewis Beam does that with the way he talks about the Vietnam War. Again, very hard for a historian to say whether he's actually experiencing, um, he says he's experiencing PTSD. I don't know if he's experiencing PTSD or sort of talking about it in a way that speaks to others who are, but certainly he's mobilizing that as a narrative form in a really compelling way. The Turner Diaries is doing that with sort of like the apocalyptic moment of the 1980s, right? Um, They're picking up on things like the gun show culture, paintball, Soldier of Fortune magazine. All of this is sort of a milieu of paramilitarism that other historians have documented. I actually purchased the Turner Diaries at a gun show in Michigan that I went to with my brother. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you bring up Soldier of Fortune magazine. I did want to get to that because Soldier of Fortune is closely intertwined with that. When I was working in magazines, it was seen as a kind of eccentric, you know, survivalist stay-at-home gun nuts. And you actually make the case that they were very deeply intertwined with the white power movement, which is something I had never known. For those of you who don't remember Soldier of Fortune, it actually had a very high circulation. Again. Is it gone? It no longer It's exists. gone, yes. Yeah. Between 300 and 500,000 in the newsstands. And it was basically a bunch of jabroni standing around holding guns. And you'd look at these guys going, wow, you've got some masculinity problems. But people used to go and like pick this up. And it was it was a weird magazine. You know, It was a very strangely shot. It was like the high times for gun nuts is the best way. It I was almost it. like paramilitary playgirl, but they had yeah. clothes yeah. on. Yeah. Like it, it was, was weird. Yeah, yeah. It, it was pornography for gun nuts. Yeah. Uh, but, and sometimes they did not have clothes on. I mean, like, really? yeah, well, there's a lot of like topless ads. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad, glad to learn that. Uh, <laughs> it's been a while since I've been a soldier. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, was not a conce- I was not a continuous soldier of fortune reader. It was more of a, you know, I stumbled across it. Uh, but that, that's a really interesting point that, uh, that when we're talking about art and literature, and I mean this in a dispassionate way, you know, the white power movement has its own band. Screwdriver is one of the most popular white power bands. You know, I'm making fun of Red Dawn, Turner Diaries. A movement is, in a way, a movement when it has its own art and culture and literature around it. And Soldier of Fortune was that. It was basically a mainstream version of Thunderbolt, which was the Klan magazine. It was something that they could point to in the mainstream culture and use as a reference point to say, actually, we are accepted. Our, our viewpoints are accepted. 
And this leads me to my next question. A lot of this groundwork seems to have laid the foundation for what we have right now in political office. Mm -hmm. And I know your book doesn't go there, but I wondered if you had an opinion on that, given the fact that most of our current dialogue coming from our White House is extremely white identity and white power politics. I did want to mention, too, that there was a record label at Detroit called Resistance Records. Yeah. I don't know if you came across Definitely. it. And they did a really good job of marketing hate. It was like it was almost like a like a Kerrang or circus magazine yeah. that you get in the eighties or nineties, like the rock and roll magazines, but it was aimed at the white power movement. And um, you know, they, they made it like it, it was almost like it was cool to be hateful, you know, and they would market it, you know, yeah. and sell it and package it to youth. And Detroit had a very disenfranchised white culture at that time because the city's yeah. very racial it's much worse than here I, I don't know if it still is but when i was growing up it was very you know split these people are taking our jobs these you know and it was really the the, the fall of capitalism in the city the big three leaving that destroyed the city yeah but you know like always the capitalists turn us all on each other so right now, well, yeah. i mean yeah so okay so one way to think about this is, um, so when you think about a social movement, um, one useful thing to think about is sort of concentric circles of levels of participation. Um, so if you think about the white power movement in the 1980s, that's counting everybody, the Klansmen and the neo-Nazis together with all of these other groups, right? Rather than trying to sort them into columns. Historians agree we're looking at something like 25,000 people in the center, right? These are hardcore activists. Um, so people who have their whole social relationships are in the movement. They marry one another. They um, turn to each other for important things in their lives. They live and breathe the movement, right? And then outside of that, there's a group of like 150 to 175,000 people who buy the literature, go to the rallies, things like that, right? But that's a, like a different level. Um, and then outside of that, another 450,000 people, historians think, probably read the literature but did not buy it themselves, right? You could imagine that you could go on and on like this with another concentric circle outside of that of people who wouldn't read a white power newspaper but might agree with an idea from one in conversation with a friend, right? The way that this moves from center to periphery is part of what we're getting at here. Um, because when we think about fringe movements, um, the John Birch Society, for instance, has been much better studied. That peaked at 100,000 people, right? This is a comparable movement. Um, fringe movements aren't just isolated on the edge. They're also interacting with other cultural currents and impacting things in the mainstream. Um, the other thing I would say, and the, your comment about capitalism is such an interesting way to come to this, but there is a way that, okay. So we usually think about a political continuum as a line, right, right and left. There's a center, then there's a line, right and left. Um, what actually happens I don't think is that. Um, because if you think about these spaces where people are meeting each other, um, there's a shared set of beliefs between the people who are racist skinheads and the people who are non-racist skinheads. There's a sh shared set of beliefs about mainstream culture, about authority, about capitalism, about the state, I would guess. Fighting. Fighting, yeah. Makeup, liquor and drugs, right? Um, there's a shared aesthetic, there's a shared music scene. So that actually also happens um, in the much more conservative part of the white power movement. So we have a lot of history. So if you live on a white power compound in the 1980s, you have two likely sets of neighbors. One is farmers, and we know a lot about how this movement interacted with dispossessed farmers, right? That's all through the literature. But the other one is hippies. 
So you see the left kind of coming into the right there too. And the people that I study are interested in macrobiotic diet, organic gardening, traditional midwifery, um, neo-paganism, anti-fluoridation, and a whole bunch of other things that would have been kind of cross currents with the fringe left. So it might be helpful to think about, especially in the 90s when we start to have on both sides this very intense um, rhetoric about like the state overstepping and, and sort of trampling everybody else. I think the fringes actually are more of a circle where the left and the right sometimes have more in common with each other than they do with the center. So by WTO in 1999, Lewis Beam is out there protesting. Well, not he's not out there, but he's writing in favor of the protesters because any enemy of the, the New World Order is a friend of his, right? Um, it's just an interesting sort of set of cross-pollinations, I think. We've got some questions from the audience. Of course, none of y'all put your names down, so I'm going to make up a funny name for Jamie, you. Jamie, can I say something real? Sure. What? I just want to tell everyone, I went to a Michigan militia rally mm -hmm. in the 90s with a guy in a hot dog costume, and we all carried <clears throat> protest signs. Why did you go on a hot dog costume? I didn't have the hot dog costume, but the guy that we went with, and we all carried protest signs with Ted Nugent lyrics on them. So <laughs> just thought I'd share that. <laughs> I don't know. Why did you go in a hot dog costume? I didn't wear a hot dog costume. What the was the, but what, why a hot dog costume? Why did he? Because I don't know. And they were very confused by it. And we had signs that said, cat scratch fever and wang dang sweet. I don't know if I can say that on the radio. You but just did. I didn't say it. Uh, I said did. sweet. You did. Oh, I see. All right. Wang dang. Wang dang. Yeah. 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 I gotcha. Okay. <laughs> but that, that's a true story. And why are we talking about Ted Nugent? We had a, his lyrics on it. All right, let's let's get to the questions. Here. Uh, <laughs> Fred asks, uh, could you talk a little more about the transnational aims of these groups? You mentioned the desire to transcend the borders of the U.S. to create a white uh, nation globally. Have they taken practical steps to forge uh, alliances, et cetera? Um, the short answer to that is yes, absolutely. And this actually gives me an opportunity to go back to something I wanted to say about Soldier of Fortune also, which is um, Soldier of Fortune, I think we wouldn't think of as a white power magazine, right? It's an example of a bridge publication between the white power movement and more mainstream readers. So it has both, right? Um, but Soldier of Fortune is a great place to look to think about the transnational impact about of this movement um, because there are a bunch of people, well, not a bunch of people, but there are a small number of people who um, consider becoming activists in the white power movement and decide instead to become mercenary soldiers in Central America, for instance. Often that is through or facilitated by a soldier of fortune, and definitely it is using the sort of currents built by soldier of fortune. Um, so I have a chapter here about the way that mercenaries sort of both uh, figured out how to wage anti-democratic warfare as a sort of praxis for later combat in the United States um, and worked to prop up a sort of paramilitary state craft um, pioneered, but well, not pioneered by, but executed by the Reagan um, administration in Nicaragua and El Salvador and elsewhere. Um, Transnational now is a little bit trickier, and if anyone knows of a history graduate student who speaks German and Russian and can do computer coding, I would love to oversee that project, but I don't myself have those skills. <laughs> um, but World Church of the Creator is an ex a great example. I mean, like um, Lewis Beam's website is translated into Russian. These, these groups are definitely interested in transnational activism. Um, and in the period of my study, did things like found the Cause Foundation, which was a legal defense fund for white supremacists, and Cause is an acronym for Canada, Australia, wait, C-A-U, um, Canada, Australia, Europe, and the United States. That wasn't in order. You got it. Uh, 
Johnny Jojo asks, uh, do you think we can draw parallels from Vietnam as betrayal, uh, frame, uh, betrayal framing and the current seemingly perpetual Iraq war and the rise of the so-called alt-right? So here I have to be a historian and say that my archival expertise stops at 1995. Um, I think that the archive can tell us that um, the aftermath of combat has correlated with surges in this kind of activism um, and with clan activity, for instance, um, throughout the long 20th century. So every surge of the clan has aligned with the aftermath of warfare. Let me be very clear about what I'm saying about veterans, because this is not a book about veterans as a whole. This is a book about a tiny, tiny, tiny number of veterans who come back and carry out these actions um, directly opposed in many cases to their oath of induction. Um, this is it, the, when I started writing this book, I was interested in exactly what was going on there with those peaks in the aftermath of warfare. Um, it turns out that it is not just veterans doing that. Um, when we look at the um, surges in violence in American society after warfare, it goes across age groups and it grows across gender. So something is happening in the aftermath of warfare that is simply more violent. Um, we get these moments in American history where we have these um, escalations of something. Um, there are different ways that one might understand that. One would be a sort of classic, like the state holds a monopoly on violence during warfare and when it lets go, perhaps there's like a water balloon effect, right? Like it, you let go, it comes out somewhere else. Um, another might be that um, both citizens and soldiers are moved to violence by wartime exposure to violence. Um, I think that that's something that we should continue to study. Um, but I... I don't see any archival reason to think that the aftermath of these wars would not produce that same effect. Um, and the other thing is we don't have a corollary example for this sort of ongoing engagement that we are um, using now. We don't, we don't have a corollary example for these long, endless wars um, that have a very different sort of character, a very different sort of afterlife than a big engagement like Vietnam. Um, I, I would anticipate um, looking at the current activity that the body count so far is very low and that we would expect to see more activity before we see less. Do you think, though, that uh, just as a, a personal thing, because we didn't really answer the question about our current government, which, mm -hmm. which seems to be drawing these lessons, do you think things like the Gulf War, which, which Jeremy fought in, actually, uh, and the perpetual war that we've got in Afghanistan have led us to elect somebody who is uh, taking cues from, from uh, white identity politics? I, I don't think I would draw it so simply as warfare creates um, the political movements that deliver us here. I think it's more that um, we have a moment where there is a wink and a nod and an acceptability of some of this activism in the public sphere that's allowed it to come back out into the open. Um, but I think I think I would say that it's instructive in this moment to think about what we were saying earlier about the fact that the last time this movement turned to open war on the government was during the Reagan administration in 1983, um, which was a moment when it seemed to them probably that they had a lot to gain from executive power, right? They had a lot to gain from the Reagan administration. Um, much like today's activists, we might think have a lot to gain from the Trump administration. Um, that's not how it went before. And if anything, the moderation um, and kind of the 
the lack of follow through um, that they thought uh, Reagan exemplified in his second term led them to lose trust in the state entirely. Um, so it's, I, I think it's important to bear in mind. That's part of the reason I became interested in a lot of these things, because Timothy McVeigh and I were both stationed at Fort Riley, mm -hmm. although I went over with a unit in Germany. But it's always fascinating to me. It's like I'm a veteran, saw combat, and how does one, you know, I, I don't hate any group of people. And it, it's always amazing to me. It's like, and I think you do a good job of putting it together, how some people become so disenfranchised, like Timothy McVeigh blowing up the World Trade Center. I mean, not the World Trade Center, the Oklahoma City uh, building. And I've always been fascinated. It's like, what, at what point do you get to where you're like, okay, this is what I'm going to do next. And with veterans, and, and I, I, it's very obvious when you read the book that you're not talking about all veterans. So I'm, I'm glad you stated that, but I don't think it's necessary. But it's, it's like, it's, it's fascinating to me as a veteran to read how people become so disenfranchised. You know, I mean, I, I had bad experiences. Like, you know, I, 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 it was a crazy time. And when you go over to the dark side, you know, it's just, it's, it's a very uh, interesting thing. And I, and when I was reading it, especially, you know, especially when you're talking about the Vietnam guys, you know, we came back from the Gulf War and everyone's like, yay, war. But when the Vietnam guys came back, you know, they were spit on and, you know, uh, it was a small population of, the, of a small percent of the population that were, were against the war. And uh, I mean, a large, you know what I'm saying? A large percent of the population is against the war, a very small population um, so like we used to joke, I was a veteran of a popular war, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and now we like, it, it, as a veteran, I'm disgusted how they parade veterans out on football fields and they parade veterans. We have a president that, um, you know, dodged service by bone spurs. He didn't even know what foot he had, you know, and things like the rich people getting away with things like that. But I think you did an excellent job and I, I don't think you implicate veterans in any way, shape or form of putting together or through your research, the you know how the, they became disenfranchised and turned on the people that were supposed to support them in the first place. We only have a couple seconds left, but one thing that I've been dying to ask you all night, did these people see any irony at all in co-opting the tactics of the left? This is a tricky question um, because they would tell you that they are not co-opting the tactics of the left. They're lying. Um, the, <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are several places where I think, historically speaking, they are, they are co-opting the tactics of the left, um, whether we're talking about counterinsurgency warfare um, or whether we're talking about... Um, I can think of one example where in the FBI file on the order, there's a whole section in there of... of um, the Weather Underground because of the other Brinks armed car robberies, which were carried out by the Weather Underground, right? Right here. Um, right here. So um, there are many, I think, I, I would guess that there is a combination of sort of like things are in the milieu and everyone's using them. Mm -hmm. um, idea sharing, which I think is the thing we have not studied very much right. and I'd like to study more, and co-opting. With that, please give it up for Dr. Kathleen. Thank you very much. Quick shout out, Aaron and Mary at Pilsen Community Books. Thanks for having us once again. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. 
This episode featured Kathleen Bellew, author of Bring the War Home, out now from Harvard. This episode was taped in front of a live studio audience on September 20th, 2018 at Pilsen Community Books and originally aired on September 23. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com.